Matthew chapter five is where we are in our study through the Bible. Mosey in through Matthew. <laughs> we definitely have been a little slower in this last couple of weeks, um, but in our defense, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. And so it's worthy of taking time and considering and slowing down maybe a little bit. Um, a few reminders as we're still sort of uh, just dipping our toe into the New Testament as we've been in the Old Testament for the last nine years. Um, we are now in the New Testament. I like to remind, you know, that um, remember that, that new quote unquote, new, new Christianity did not replace old Judaism. Um, not replacement, but fulfillment. Christianity is fulfilling Judaism. And that's a key part of your understanding and thinking. Um, and if you understand that, much more of the Bible will make sense, including the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has a massive link. Remember I told you about, you know, the, the pastors and preachers are saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Uh, and so churches by the droves have forsaken the Old Testament. Uh, they think, ah, that's for the Jews. And we're Christians, so we're New Testament kind of people. Horrible, horrible teaching, horrible way to understand the Bible. If you don't understand the Old Testament, the law of Moses, you will not understand the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Gospel of Matthew was largely written for and to the Jewish people. All the Gospels kind of have a specific audience of the four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew really does kind of connect Judaism to Christianity. And it's such an important thing for us to kind of see that. And it'll help you with the Sermon on the Mount because if you don't know the purpose of the law and what the law says in the Old Testament, then much of what Jesus is talking about, it'll be weird to you. And you might even be prone to misinterpretation if you uh, read, like here's one of the classic misinterpretations of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, I, I better live this way. I better do what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount or I'm going to hell. Is that a true statement, what I just said? Boy, it sounds so true, doesn't it? Of course you gotta do what Jesus says. And if you don't do what Jesus says, you're going to hell. Well, that's actually not, not the case in this situation. Um, and we'll show you what I mean as we get, but God has a perfect plan. Since the beginning of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God comes up with the perfect plan that is airtight and, and you know, perfect for salvation for humanity. Um, and, but you gotta understand all the components of his plan to really see the purpose of, of his heart and, and how he kind of seals the deal. How does he make it airtight? Well, there's a lot of moving parts to the idea of salvation. I love how a little kindergartner, a two-year-old can even understand the, the gospel message. But um, one of the things I really am thankful for is that, um, that it's shallow enough for a kindergartner to wade through the gospel, but it's deep enough for theologians to study for the rest of their lives. I love that about the Bible. I love that about the gospel. And I love that about God's plan for salvation. So uh, it's gonna be good for us to remember some of our Old Testament teaching and the law and the prophets uh, as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, kind of important. Remember the Old and New Testament are both important. In the Old, we see truth concealed. In the New, we see truth revealed. And um, that's really what Jesus is gonna do here um, on the Sermon on the Mount. Now we got to the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, famously known as the Beatitudes from that word beatus that we looked at last week, um, which is kind of the attitudes which we are to be, not attitudes that we are to do. Remember, it's not the do attitudes, it's the be attitudes. Um, um, and, and one thing that we have to remember about the beatitudes, it sounds so heavy in so many of the places. Blessed are they which are persecuted and suffer. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you're thinking, oh man, this is heavy. But they're not the be heavy attitudes, they're the be happy attitudes, right? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Every time he starts one of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed, which means happy are those who do these things. And we went over the poor in spirit, they that mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. We talked about blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers, and also they that are persecuted. We talked about all of those, how the Lord says, happy are they. Um, and there's great results for those that, uh, just lean on the Lord through all those things. And then on Sunday, uh, the last two Sundays, we talked about salt 
Sunday number one and, and light, Sunday number two, which was last Sunday. And so that leaves us here to pick up in verse 17. He gets into, while the Beatitudes were the not heavy attitudes, some of the stuff he's gonna talk about from this point on do get pretty heavy, I'll warn you. There's kind of a heaviness to this. Uh, and you'll see what I mean. Um, but, he's, but, but you have to understand, I'm just gonna give you kind of a freebie here. Jesus is setting up the Jewish audience um, t- for something that's gonna be a shock to their system, a jolt to their religion. And, uh, and at first it's gonna, uh, you know, if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee in the group or a scribe, I should say in that group, uh, you might be hanging with Jesus pretty good in the first part of this dissertation. Um, uh, but they're gonna be shocked here in a minute. So uh, we have to understand that people are gonna be uh, uh, listening to what Jesus has to say, this itinerant rabbi from Galilee. Let's see what Jesus says as he goes. After talking about, you are the salt, you are the light. Then he says, verse 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and here's where you already have some, some trouble. If, if you're us in the, in the Greek uh, New Testament, reading the New Testament, you can, uh, just reading this alone, you're thinking, oh man. So Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And that, that's kind of the operational uh, thing we have to figure out. What does that mean that Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law? Um, he's setting up the Jewish audience for an important sermon, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones who were the keepers of the law. The Pharisees were sort of the, the varsity team of the keepers of the law. They, they were the ones who did the crazy level, um, you know, uh, keeping of the law, or at least attempting to do so. Um, now, by the way, uh, one of the things that's fun about preaching is I'm always, uh, this used to trouble me a little more, but I've realized that, um, you know, when you teach the truth, there's always gonna be people who are, you know, shocked and even angry about truth. Have you ever noticed that when you speak truth? Um, I remember the early days, you know, I'd see people get up and march out of the sermon. And I'd feel so bad, like, oh, you know, and I'd wanna go chase after them in my heart, you know, like, oh, come on, let me explain this to you. You know, I probably didn't mean what you thought I said or whatever. Uh, but as the years have gone by, I'm like, no, I really meant that. And they really heard it that way. And, uh, you know, people are gonna be upset when they hear truth. And there's, there's some people that are just gonna reject truth. Um, and so uh, it's funny because Jesus, so far, so good. The Pharisees would have heard what he just said and said, check. Hey, maybe this guy's not so bad after all. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees as they hear what Jesus is saying. Um, um, and so, um, you know, I love this. In verse one, let's kind of see, it says, um, you know, in verse one of our text, it says, remember he was set, his disciples, they, he set, so he's sitting down. I like his posture here. He's not upstanding, pacing back and forth with his Armani suit with a matching sweat towel. And he's running around, you know, saying all this stuff. I like that Jesus is just calmly preaching the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus sat, um, people say, Brett, why do you sit on a soul? Well, I'm just being like Jesus. Uh, um, you know, it's funny how uh, when, when I read Jesus and his teachings, I can't picture the preacher running around being very theatrical and laying down and kneeling and running through the congregation. And ah, to me, that's just kind of hype. For, for me, I, I kind of like the, you know, let, let the truth kind of stand for what it is and just speak the truth. That's all you got to do. Um, but you know, there's some people that are maybe more demonstrative or theatrical, but to me, a lot of what's out there, I, I, I would caution you from some of the more theatrical guys. I don't really see that as Jesus. Jesus was not theatrical. Jesus would, you know, use illustrations and he would talk about consider the lilies of the field. And he'd talk about salt and light, things that people understood. And he was sitting down, just talking. The greatest sermon ever preached was from a guy sitting down, just, just an FYI. 
Some people say, Brett, it's because you're out of shape. You're sitting on a stool. It's actually not it. I actually, uh, I like standing, walking, hiking. I believe it or not, I do all those things. But I, but I have to say, no, it's, it's, it's actually, at Athey Creek, one of the things we like is kind of the vibe of saying, hey, let's sit down in our church living room here and talk about the Bible. Uh, it's not me preaching a sermon, you know, to you guys pounding the pulpit. By the way, the, the harder a, a pastor pounds the pulpit, I've noticed, usually there's an old saying, weak point, pound pulpit. The harder you pound the pulpit, maybe people will believe you the more. Uh, I found that actually is kind of a true thing. But Jesus was sitting down, calmly speaking scriptural truth. And that's kind of what, what would, that would also sort of shock the Jews as Jesus is calmly uh, preaching this. Um, so in verse 17, he says, I am not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That's, that's the thing. Um, that we have to kind of understand. Now, he also says the law, you know, is gonna remain. And it's not going away. Um, a lot of the people w today would say, well, the law, that's, it's old, it's for the Jews from thousands of years ago. But Jesus makes a point here that's still true. In fact, he says not one, verse 18, not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What's a jot and a tittle? It's a little like when we say we're gonna cross our T's and dot our I's. We're not gonna miss a thing. And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying. In fact, by the way, for you that are interested, it's actually the jot and tittle thing is not a Greek term, uh, even though the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, it's actually a Hebrew term from the Hebrew letters. Um, in fact, you, you might just, you guys that are interested in this stuff, a jot is actually the, the, um, the, the Greek word iota is the word there, by the way. Not one iota, have you heard that term before? Um, but the, um, the, it's the letter of the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, yod, and uh, it looks like a little apostrophe. Um, the tittle is like the difference between the bet and the kaf uh, in the Hebrew letters, that, just that little things at the end of that letter changes the letter, and that's what they would call a tittle. Um, so the idea is we're not gonna leave out anything uh, of the law, it's all gonna uh, be kept intact, bringing it to perfection. So then he says there in verse 19, you know, whosoever there shall for break um, one of these least commandments shall, uh, or, and or teach men to do so, to break the commandments, um, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you just take that at face value, you think, okay, so that means that Pastor Brett needs to teach the law and to be those of us that keep the law. Some people, if you don't know your Bible and you just read that, um, you might see a little bit of a conflict with what we believe, at least what's, maybe even you might say, if you know your Bible, is that even pop, pop, possible? Is it possible for you to keep even the least of the commandments of the law? The answer is no. Then why does Jesus say this? There's a reason he's saying this. And it's a heavy reason. But just before we get down to the reason, the Pharisees would have said, yes, that is true. Because we are keeping every jot and tittle. And Jesus is saying, of course, what we believe. You, you've got to keep the law or you will die and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of the way the Pharisees thought. That's the way they rolled. So everything Jesus is saying thus far is really making the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees were a different bunch. They, they were a little more liberal in their theology and they didn't believe in the resurrection and stuff. So that's why they were Sadducee. But, um, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the guys that were law keepers to the jot and the tittle. At least they, they claimed to be that, but they weren't, they claimed to be that. So they're like it's piously probably going, mm-hmm, and maybe this guy's not so bad after all. Um, but you and I are saying, ah, you gotta keep the law because we know it's impossible. Uh, and we know that, how? Well, the Bible tells us that. And we'll, we'll show you that as we keep going. Uh, Jesus is not contradicting himself. Uh, I'm just gonna make that clear. You might say, see, see that it seems that way, but it's not. I'll show you why here in a second. But um, basically during Jesus' time, there were 7,000 Pharisees on the scene. Uh, they were very academic. Uh, one of the famous Pharisees that was uh, surfacing during the time of Jesus was a guy named Gamaliel, who would later be Paul the Apostle's uh, tutor, uh, you know, mentor in the area of Phariseeism. And um, there was also Nicodemus, who was also a teaching Pharisee during Jesus' time. And I'm sure in their minds, they're all thinking, so far, so good. Uh, Jesus is, is saying truth so far. 
Now, uh, we go on though, and verse 20 is where Jesus is gonna shock people and the Pharisees are gonna flip out on these kind of things. Verse 20, Jesus says, um, for I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ooh. Now, now the Pharisees, first of all, do you understand what Jesus just said to the Pharisees? You guys aren't good enough. He just said that to them. They thought they were the best of the best and they were technically, but they were still way, way far. They, they were so far from fulfilling righteousness. It wasn't even funny, but in their minds, they thought, well, we're the best of the best. So God likes us. He doesn't like you. And now Jesus is saying, yeah, you're not even close. And unless all of your righteousness is exceeding that of the Pharisees, then you're not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. So the big question you'd be thinking in your head at that time is, well, then who gets to enter the kingdom of heaven? Implication? No one. That's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. What you just saw in that little snapshot, that is the whole reason Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. He's gonna show us what you cannot even come close to achieving. So that's why the, the, the man that says, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount, that's very short-sighted of you to say that because you're not even close. And if you even think you're close, you don't understand the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount's purpose is to say, whew, good luck with that. No one is good enough to, to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees, you know, uh, they, would, you know they, they would go out of their way to show people how righteous they were. So the people would have said, what? You mean even the Pharisees aren't good enough? Um, and these are the guys, remember, they were the ones who would give to the poor. They, the Pharisees actually, a certain sect of them carried a little tiny trumpet with them all the time. And when they would give their alms to the poor, they would give the alms and then they would take out their trumpet and they'd let everybody, everybody go, wow, the Pharisees are giving more money to the poor. And they would esteem them as something amazing. Um, they were the ones who would remember separate their, the tithe of their spices. And they would, you know, nine for me, one for the Lord. And the people would sit there, watch them parsing out their tithe, their tithe of spice. Um, there was a whole other sect of Pharisees and they called it in the Greek term, but the English translation is, the, this is true. There was a group of Pharisees that people jokingly called the bump and stumble Pharisees. Do you know who the bump and stumbles were? They were a group of Pharisees that were so pious. They said, we are not gonna look upon a woman with lust in our heart. And so we're gonna close our eyes and walk with our heads down. And they would walk around bumping and stumbling into things because they were so pious, they wouldn't wanna look upon a woman with lust. And so they were the bump and stumble. These guys, and so the, the average Jew on the street would be like, wow, you, you have to have your righteousness exceed. By the way, you know, the Sabbath day, the Pharisees had all kinds of rules and restrictions and what have you. And remember, a lot of these things became way past what, um, you know, what the, what the Lord ever uh, asked of them. And the laws would be exhausting. They would be exhausting. Not only were the laws exhausting, remember my wall of laws that I'd like to put up here on the wall? Uh, I've got them for you again, just in case you haven't memorized them yet. Um, there's the 613 laws of the Hebrew Bible. Those are the six, six, and by the way, these are the ones, these very laws, these 613, are the ones Jesus would perfectly fulfill, as it turns out. He would fulfill all these. Now, one of the confusion points is people say, well, what about this, the, the Sabbath day when Jesus got in trouble for picking corn on the Sabbath? Well, that's not on this wall. It does say you're just keep the Sabbath day holy, not to do any work on the Sabbath, but then the, the Jews added their commentary on this, and then they said, okay, well, what, does, what constitutes work? And they started making more rules and piling more and more rules to where it got ridiculous. Jesus didn't keep the, the, the commentary laws or the traditional laws. He kept the biblical laws. Are you guys with me on that? And Jesus would fulfill all these 613 laws. But like the remember the Sabbath day and keep it all. Remember I showed you a few months ago, remember the, um, the, the law of Aruv where they started tying sheets and strings and ropes to doorknobs and stuff. And that's in place today. I like to remind people of this because people don't believe me, but you look it up. NPR did a whole thing on a fishing line in Circles Manhattan protecting sanctity of Sabbath. You can travel, if you're a Jew living in Manhattan, uh, anywhere on the Sabbath within the circle where the fishing line is because it's technically your home because the fishing line is connected from house to house. And it literally, this fishing line literally goes around all of Manhattan. 
Um, that's the Eruv. And by the way, Portland has one too. Uh, so practicing Jews can move around Portland on the Sabbath day and visit their friends and stuff because they're not leaving their home technically. These are all just dumb laws. Um, by the way, the Jews actually uh, have this fishing line and they inspect it you know, every Friday morning uh, to make sure it's still intact. Uh, and the rabbis go out there and if it's broken anywhere, then they have to fix it. They've got a budget of $150,000 to make sure that uh, this um, all year long, the string stays intact in New York City. But that's ridiculous. That's the point. They came up with ridiculous laws and rules. And even to this day, the Jews still practice things that are not in the Bible. There's nothing about a fishing line and walking within the fishing line. That's just people being kind of weird. And that's just human nature. It's not just the Jews. It's, it's, it's human nature to do weird stuff. But um, they missed the point of the law. Uh, and and um, so, you know, here in our text in Matthew, what, what is the purpose of the law? The, the answer to prove to be the indictment against humanity that says no one is righteous enough. That's the whole purpose. It's an indictment against humanity. And, and um, so the Sermon on the Mount doesn't offer a solution to this. It's just gonna make it clear that, oh, you think the law is bad? Listen to what Jesus has to say. He's gonna take it to the next level of impossibility. And, and, and what our verse 20 says is that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, no one will enter into the kingdom of heaven. You say, now Brett, well, if the Sermon on the Mount's so glorious, then, and he doesn't give the answer or the solution to the problem of the depravity of humanity, then why is it such a glorious sermon? The answer, Jesus is the answer to the Sermon on the Mount. He is the embodiment. He is the answer to the problem that he is raising in the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's the living, breathing answer to the world's problem. And that's what makes this such an intriguing sermon. Uh, when you walk away from the Sermon on the Mount, you're gonna think, well, we gotta figure something else out. Because the 613 laws that we had, they didn't, they didn't uh, do it for us. And we've had millennia of trying and the Pharisees have tried, but we've all failed. So what's next? And the answer, Jesus. It's all part of the plan of God that Jesus would be the one who fulfills the law. Jesus said that in verse 17, think not that I've come to destroy the law. It still serves the indicting purpose, but I have come to fulfill the law. Now, this is something that people get confused on. And I wanna try to offer three points of clarification. Jesus fulfilled the law in three ways, and you can jot these down if you wish. But um, how did Jesus fulfill the law? I think this is important, you know these three. First of all, we know, like I mentioned earlier, Jesus was obedient to the law. Jesus never sinned, never broke the law of, of, of the books of Moses and the laws of God. He fulfilled the law as it was originally written, not with additions of the traditions of men. Um, and so like, like I told you, the picking corn thing, there in Mark chapter two, verse 27, Jesus said to them, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. Um, and so Jesus had to set them straight on some of their goofy laws. But Jesus, not keeping the Jewish traditions, but kept the biblical tradition of keep, keeping the law. By the way, prophetically, Isaiah the prophet would speak about the Messiah who would fulfill the law. It's Isaiah 42, 21. It says, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake, he will magnify the law and make it honorable. That's what the Messiah would do. Uh, and Jesus did just that, fulfilling Isaiah 42, 21 perfectly. So first, the first notion here is Jesus was obedient to the law. He, he kept the law in perfection. And number two issue, Jesus was the satisfaction of the law. Um, uh, you might even use the word in your notes, propitiation. That's worth a, a word study right there. What is propitiation? It's the satisfaction that God requires for humanity to be declared righteous. You and I are declared unrighteous, sinful, destined for hell, but because of Jesus being perfect, he satisfies the law and then he dies on the, on the, on the cross for the sins of the world and, and he satisfies the law for us in our place is, is kind of the idea. And it's, it's uh, interesting because anyone in the Old Testament who sinned against God breaks the law and was, many of the laws were deserving of death. If you read, remember when we went through the Old Testament, you guys that were here with us back in the Old Testament law, we saw, you know, that um, the Old Testament atonement had to be blood, play, blood payment 
minimally had to be death of an animal or something. But there were even laws where people would literally be killed. If you were a disobedient child, you were to take them outside of the city and stone them to death. Um, again, that's, that's where a lot of people don't understand the, the purpose of the law. Like President Obama, when he said, what are we gonna do? Do what the Bible says and take our children out and stone them to death? That was him being snarky about the Bible, not knowing a word that he was talking about. Pretty typical of our presidents, I've known all of them. Uh, they misquote and don't understand the Bible often. Um, but that's the idea, the law. I mean, how many of us would have survived the disobedient children thing? Uh, I wouldn't be here if that law were still in act uh, for us. Uh, another death penalty in the Old Testament was if you were an adulterer or an adulteress. Um, now, one thing you should also know, there's the Mosaic law, which is sort of the, um, the Pentateuch, but there is also the, the law of God, and there is a difference. I, I think you should note, the 10 commandments are often referred to as the law of God, while the law of Moses is the traditions given to the Jews, the 613 laws that I put on there. But you have to understand, it, it doesn't matter whether you've broken one of the 613 or the 10, you're still in huge trouble. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Um, so, you know, some of you might say, well, I understand the 10 commandments and I'm okay. Thou shalt not kill, check, haven't done that. Thou shalt not commit adultery, check. Uh, thou shalt not covet, oh, wait a minute. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath, remember, keep it holy. Like the 10 commandments are also part of this uh, where the wages of sin is death. So uh, glad we're not, you know, um, basing our eternal salvation on our ability to keep the Old Testament law or the 10 commandments. You and I cannot base our salvation on those things. Jesus, however, did keep the entire law perfectly. Um, and, and verse 19, seeming contradiction, uh, whosoever shall break one of these least of the commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, but whoever does teach these things, um, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's preaching this. Uh, and so he fulfills <laughs> this idea of what is the preaching of the law all about? It's, a, it's gonna ultimately be to drive us to Jesus Christ. And that's why, by the way, I still teach the law. People say, why do you still go through the Old Testament then? If we're no longer under the law, um, why do you do that? Because it's part of the Bible and we still need the indictment. We still need humanity to know how much trouble we are in. <clears throat> so what is the purpose of the law? If Jesus already fulfilled it, why care about it? Paul teaches about this in Galatians. In fact, I need you to probably turn to this. Uh, flip over, keep your finger in Matthew 5 and go to Galatians chapter 3. And we've gone over this before, but uh, if you're just joining us, this is a real key to understanding what purpose the law serves today for the church. <clears throat> Galatians 3, 21. It says there, is the law then, speaking of the law of Moses, against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, fairly righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be, might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, the schoolmaster being the law. Um, that's such a key. Galatians 3, 21 through 25 explains why we are no longer under the law. And if anybody was saved by the keeping of the law, it would have been kept. But no one was ever declared righteous by the keeping of the law. Flip over to Romans chapter 10. Um, Romans chapter 10, verses one through four. Uh, Paul says some interesting stuff in addition uh, to this. It says in Romans 10, one through four, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness 
and have not submitted themselves to right, the righteousness of God. For verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What a powerful verse that is, verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So now through faith in Jesus Christ, the law comes to an end. Um, the word end there is a great word. I love the word, it's uh, telos in the Greek. Um, and the reason I, I, I like this word is because the, the, the description of its definition, end, termination, goal, culmination, fulfillment. Uh, one dictionary even says conclusion. Uh, I like that um, because um, these, these are definitions that basically are saying, this is what the law is. It, the word telos, the end, the termination, the goal, uh, which I like the word goal because Jesus reaches the goal of keeping the law. So in that, in that work that he did, anyone that believes in him gets to ride his coattails into salvation. That's the idea there. So Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Okay, so back to our points here. So, so Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Number one, he was obedient to the law. Number two, he was the satisfaction of the law. But number three, Jesus gave us freedom in the law. You and I no longer condemned, uh, but we're free from the laws of sin and death. Romans eight, you can jot this down in your notes. Romans eight, one through four. There is therefore now no condemnation. Boy, let's stop right there. Does that sound good to anybody? Because man, condemnation, that's what the Satan does, Satan does all the time. He whispers in your ear, he's called the accuser of the brethren and he does it how often? Day and night. And the Bible says for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after this, uh, the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what, could the, what, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That is because Jesus never sinned. He won the victory. But verse four is the operative part, um, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walked not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Um, what's the that therefore? It's that what the law couldn't do, Jesus did, and he condemned sin, of sin, that you and I get to be fulfilling the law by Jesus. That's how that, that works. Uh, so, um, you know, I love this. After Jesus, uh, the spirit of God would then be in us. Remember when Jesus said, uh, the spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. John 14 and then John 16 and then Acts 1, the spirit came upon them. Remember those three relationships? The Holy Spirit is part of this. After Jesus, then the spirit would be in, in us. Um, and that's, that's when you became a Christian. Uh, and that's why you get to ha have Jesus in your heart. By the way, I love that, that phrase, and we often use it with children, uh, accepting Jesus in your heart. I remember uh, driving down the road, listening to some preacher saying, it's theologically incorrect to say, inviting Jesus into your heart. And he made this whole you know, intellectual sermon about uh, why it's stupid to say that. And I thought, there's a guy who's missing the point. Your heart, when, when, when we talk about your heart in the Bible, are we talking about your left ventricle? Your right atrium? Your aorta? No. Uh, when we use the word heart, we're talking about what? Your soul. Um, the part of you that thinks and feels. It's the word psyche in the Bible, in the Greek. Uh, it's the word um, lev in Hebrew, which is the word for your, the part of you, the inner man, the part of you that thinks and feels uh, in, in the Bible. But it refers to your heart as well in the Old Testament. But when you accept Jesus, you're in your soul, uh, part of you that thinks and feels, inviting him to come into that part of your being. Uh, which we refer to your heart. So it's, it's funny when people get overly technical and kind of ruin some of the imagery that the Bible actually gives us. Um, so the list there is, is uh, obedience to the law. That's what Jesus did. Um, he was the satisfaction of the law. And then he gives us freedom in the law. We're no longer under that law of death and condemnation. And so back to, to Matthew chapter five. So he leaves them with this radical grenade. Uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, boom, uh, you in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And people were probably stunned as they heard that, uh, verse 20. And then verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. 
and whoever shall kill be, uh, shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Whew. What's going on here? Well, Jesus made the, the verse 20 statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh man, that's impossible. And then he's gonna give illustrations for us. You've heard that it's been said of them of old. Now question, uh, when he says this in verse 21, this is an important establishing of who Jesus really is. He says in verse 21, for I said to you, or pardon me, verse 21, you have heard that it's said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill, but verse 22, but I say unto you, Question, who said it of old time that it was said, thou shalt not kill? Who said that? Moses said that. You might even say God said that because God wrote it on the tables of stone and then Moses delivered it. So for Jesus say, you've heard him say, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, in other words, I've got something even more to say. Do you understand what trouble that puts Jesus in in their minds? They're saying he makes himself equal to God. And they're gonna say that later on, by the way. And they're gonna to try to stone him to death because of that. But this is where they start thinking that. How is he saying he's greater than Moses? Or you might even say, how does he say he can add to anything God would give? The answer, he is God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. And so this is establishing, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is establishing his, his Later, he'd say, if you've you've seen me, has seen the Father. I and my Father are one. Later on, he won't try to even covertly make that. Uh, He'll make it very open. But right here is where he begins that, putting himself in the place of God because he is God. Kind of important. Um, But he's trumping Moses for sure in this, and that's gonna freak people out. But verse 22, it says, um, you know, but I say to you, if you're, whoever's angry with your brother, Without a, without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of counsel. Whoever shall say thou fool, thou shall be in danger of hellfire. What's that all about? Um, if you're angry, Jesus says, without a cause and you start calling people Raka or fool, you're gonna go to hell. That's what he says. You think, oh man, well, wait a minute. Uh, have I been angry? Well, there is a righteous anger, isn't there? And that's why Jesus said, whoever's angry against his brother without a cause, there is a place for anger, by the way, righteous anger, but it better be righteous anger. Uh, Jesus showed righteous anger when he turned the tables of the changers of money in the temple. Um, but, but at the, the same time, one of the signs of righteous anger is there's a controlled element. If you're out of control and angry, that's not a righteous anger. Uh, Jesus was in perfect control when he turned the tables. And boy, we could talk about that. But some of you angry men are like, see, the Bible says you can be angry if you have a cause. Well, um, it's funny because uh, I think the cause better be airtight. Because if you're angry, if you're thinking that somehow you're righteous, well, you're not. Um, because if you're, if you're even calling someone raka, you say, what is the word raka? Interesting, um, it's a word that stuck from the Aramaic. Um, and by the way, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. Did you know that? Like that, that's the language they spoke in. Um, and we forget that. We, we, they write the, the New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, but when Jesus spoke, it was Aramaic. When we go to um, Jerusalem, I've got a buddy. He's an old guy, always gives me a big juicy Arab kiss uh, when I go see him. Um, uh, Mr. Nissan, who owns an olive wood store uh, that's got all these really cool olive wood things. And he always goes, Pastor Brett. Uh, is this a solo guy? Really great dude, Mr. Nissan. But, um, but I, love, I love to have him come. Sometimes I'll have him come on and uh, jump on our buses. And, and if we don't go to a store, sometimes I'll pull by a store and say, hey, Mr. Nissan, come and recite the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic because he, he speaks the ancient language of Jesus. And so he gets on there and shares the Lord's Prayer. And it's amazing. Like people tear up when they hear him pray in the, in the language that Jesus would have prayed the Lord's Prayer in. Kind of cool. But the word raka comes from that language. Um, the Greek word version of it is um, sort, of, uh, sort of the transliteration, uh, raka, which, which means this, empty, selfless, empty-headed, worthless, airhead. 
Okay, I added the airhead part, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but the idea is if you're calling someone that an airhead, you're gonna go to hell. So no more blonde jokes. <laughs> By the way, there's one of my favorites. Uh, this, this, <laughs> this young guy is in a grocery store and this lady comes in and she, he's, he's just a, you know, one of the bag boys or whatever, but he, she comes in and she says, um, I would like to buy a half a head of lettuce and uh, can, will, you, will you sell that? And, um, and he's there, you know, washing off the vegetables and stuff. And he's like, half a lettuce. He says, no, we sell them only in whole. Well, would you ask please the manager uh, if, if you'll sell half a head of lettuce? And he's like, okay. And he walks off and, and he marches up to the front of the store where the manager is. And he says, there's this lame brain person back there who uh, uh, wants to know if he'll buy a half a head of lettuce. Um, and, um, and the, the, the manager's kind of nervous because he sees the woman followed him all the way up and she's standing right behind him. He doesn't realize. And, and he turns around and he said, oh, and this nice smart woman would like to buy the other half. <laughs> well, the lady bought her half a head of lettuce and, um, and later on the store manager came and said, man, you're quick thinking. You were in trouble there. You kind of saved that. He said, oh yeah. He said, you know, I learned that from my mom. You know, there's, uh, he says, where's your mom from? Oh, Minnesota. And there's only two things you need to know about Minnesota, uh, ugly women and great hockey teams. And the manager said, my mom's from Minnesota. He said, and which team does she play for? <laughs> now, why did I tell that? I don't know. Oh yeah, Raka. Uh, the idea is, do you understand? Jesus is saying, even if you think of that person as an airhead or empty-headed fool, if you think of that person in your heart with anger, you're guilty of sin and death and hell. Are you starting to feel like, ooh, I'm sure I've done that a time or two in my lifetime. Um, and that's the problem. Do you call people names under your breath? Do you think people are dumb? Yes. And do you call them that? I do all the time. Well, I shouldn't admit that. Um, <laughs> But basically, you understand, Jesus is painting a picture of, to show that none of, none of us even come close. Just like you and I going, oh man, I'm guilty of that. All of the listeners during Jesus' time would have as well thought, oh boy, we're toast. Verse 23, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there uh, rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, um, leave there thy gift before the altar and uh, go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. So um, you might say, Brett, every time I go to church to worship and I give an offering of worship or my tithes, um, if I've wronged somebody, I have to stop and leave the church and go make sure it's right with them and then come back. Pretty much, that's what you gotta do. Good luck with that. Um, the, the point is, a lot of us have trouble with this. Now, by the way, this is still stuff we need to think about and do. Should we be calling people names? No. Should we be bitter about people and be angry while we're worshiping the Lord? No, the, Jesus is telling us all things that are godly behaviors. Um, by the way, this one was a tough one. I remember there was a kind of a fad when I was a kid where people would do this, you know, pretty much practicing um, verses 23 and 24. And there was this thing, it sort of became hip somehow to go and tell people how, you know, you, know, you had a bitterness in your heart toward them. And this, this would happen to me. You know, people like, you know, Brad, I just wanted to tell you, you know, I just, you didn't know this, but I've, all these years, I've hated your guts. I, I just hated you. Um, I don't like anytime you're leading worship. There's a guy that actually told me that once. Whenever you led worship, I was like, ugh, man. And I was like, this guy just hated it. He said, but I'm really sorry. T Tad, you were there when that guy did that, right? Uh, <laughs> so I'm not lying, uh, but, but, um, but this guy, but he got it off his chest and walked away and he, he went away really happy. And I was like, wow, I didn't know he hated me for all these years. Um, and there was kind of a trend, you know, where church people are like, oh, I'm just gonna tell people all, I've really hated you and I'm really sorry. Um, that's not the point here. The point is if you have unfinished business that hasn't been you know, clear, cleared up and if somebody's been wounded or hurt by you, you need to go fix that. Um, that's, that's true, that is a true thing. Uh, I, I think we took it too far there back in the 70s and 80s when people were doing that, taking it too far. But, but the idea is uh, mend, heal rifts, uh, make sure that there's nothing that's gonna distract from your worshiping of the Lord. Um, if there's something between you and someone else, uh, you know, you kind of have to understand if there's bitterness in your heart, unforgiveness, 
then the Lord won't hear your prayers, the Bible says. So worshiping and prayer is a waste of time. If you're bitter and unforgiving, this is what Jesus is talking about. And again, this is all to raise the stakes and saying, good luck with that. You're not gonna be able to do that. Um, Verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to, an off, to the officer and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. This is a sort of a cultural thing that we don't really understand. In Jewish culture, we lose some of this context. Um, go, see how it says when your adversary is there while you're in the way with him? What is that all about? What happened was, is if somebody, if you didn't pay your bills, for example, and you owed a bunch of money, that person could legally walk up to you, tie you up, your hands behind your back, and march you down to the courts. As long as you were on your way to see the judge, he was in his perfect rights to have you know, handcuffed you and dragged you down to the courts. And while you're in the way with him to go see the judge, what are you supposed to do? Agree. Agree with your adversary. Oh, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, This is what Jesus is saying. So when you're walking with them in the way, uh, uh, lest at any time thy adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge delivers you to the officer and then thrown into prison. Verily I say unto you, thou shalt no means come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. How are you gonna pay the farthings if you're in prison? The answer, probably not. You're stuck there unless you have a rich uncle. But that's the point. It's better, Jesus would say, to agree with your adversary. And by the way, this this sort of goes along the lines of sort of owning the things you've done wrong. I think this is important for us as Christians to do this. Christians often, we we get good at making excuses for bad behavior, things we've done wrong and we think we're okay because we're Christians or whatever. I think we have to be, uh, you know, know, like, like the book, you know, extreme ownership. That's actually kind of a Christian thing to just own your things you did wrong. Um, and the Bible's clear on this. I remember uh, having to sort of feel this and learn this when I was in fourth grade. That's where I did all my dastardly things. But this one time I was extremely innocent. I was walking into the bathroom and Mr. Swift was our principal and at Roosh Elementary School. And I, I walked into the boys' bathroom during lunch recess or whatever. And when I got in there, there was a bunch of sixth grade boys. I was in fourth grade. But the sixth grade boys were in there strewing out all the paper towels. And there was making all over, under and over the stalls and all around the bathroom and toilet paper. And then wrapping it around. And by the time, and I, I was just a little fourth grade. I was kind of horrified of these big sixth grade kids. So I was just like, you know, doing my thing. And then I went and washed my hands. But by the time I was washing my hands, the sixth grade boys all bolted and took off, you know, and ran laughing and stuff. But then when I finished washing my hands, I walked up to, you know, there was paper towels strewn everywhere, but I, I didn't think about it. I just walked up to the paper towel and went, chink, chink. And right then, Mr. Swift walked into the bathroom and he saw me going chink, chink. And he saw the paper towels all over and he said, Mr. Metter, and I remember this to this day, he poked me in the shoulder. Mr. Metter, come down to the office right now. I was like, pooh, pooh, pooh. They used to do that in school. Uh, you, you older people know what I'm talking about. And he dragged me down into the, the principal's office. Well, as he had me by the back of my shirt and walking me down to the principal's office, the horror of all horrors happened. See, my older sisters were also attending Rouge Elementary School. Uh, Tammy, Jenny, Tammy was in fifth grade. Jenny was in sixth grade. But as I was being dragged down to the principal's office, my, my, my sister Tammy was walking in the hall the opposite direction. She just looked at me like this. <laughs> as she walked by and I knew what that meant. I knew that the moment I was gonna get home, I was gonna get a spanking. So now I got, I poked, I was in the principal's office, but a spanking was guaranteed from my father. Because my dad, he'd he'd spank and then ask questions later. That's the way that worked. Uh, And that's the way it should be, by the way. Um, But um, (laughs) some of you parents are really troubled by that. You know what, you you think, boy, I'm glad you were that, but um, my child's an angel. Um, No, your, your, your child's a fallen angel. We're all fallen in sin. What does that make your child? Fallen angels. Anyway, I won't go any further than that. Uh, but, but all that to say, but I remember at first sitting in that principal's office thinking, this is not fair. I did not do anything. And I was thinking that. But 
it's funny, even in my little fourth grade mind, I knew all the dastardly deeds that I had done before. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I probably deserve this anyway. I remember thinking that. Like whatever he gives me here, I probably deserve. And that's the way I, I tend to roll even today. If I get pulled over by a police officer, I'll say, boy, you don't even know how much I deserve this. Thank you. Thank you, officer. You're a minister of God. And <laughs> if you knew how often, well, I don't go that far. But anyway, <laughs> um, well, all that to say, uh, that this is the idea of agreeing with your officer. Just knowing, man, I'm a sinner. What is it about us that wants to defend our righteousness? I'm a good person and I've never sinned. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, we all think we're all so good. But the truth is, if you're honest, you can agree with your adversary quickly. It's not hard to do. And if somebody walks up, I think you're a jerk. You can say, boy, and you don't even know how bad it is. If you only knew what was going on in my mind, even right now. You'd be shocked at how much of a jerk I really am. And like, like there's an idea of just understanding your guilt. And that's kind of what, what I think Jesus is saying here. Agree with your adversary as he's dragging you to the court because you're probably guilty and you need to make right. Verse 27, it says, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Whew. Suddenly, uh, all the congregation's nice and quiet on this one. <laughs> I'm not saying anything on this one, Pastor Brother. Yeah, it's interesting how um, Jesus is elevating the, the technical sin to even the heart issue. You know, you may not have done the act of an adultery, adulterous act or whatever, but if you even think about it in your heart with lust, you know, he says, you're guilty of that. And, and man, suddenly we're all indicted. Suddenly we all fall way, way short, <coughs> especially half of the population here, uh, particularly on this issue, I think. It's interesting when you look at percentages and the way people think about stuff, um, but the idea of lust, just by looking upon a person, the statistics are, are um, shocking, but also changing in our culture. Uh, if you study these things, which I tend to do, um, you know, it used to be that only men looked at pornography, but in our culture, in our world, uh, the percentage of women that are being trapped in the whole sin of, a, of pornography is growing. And you think, what's going on with our culture? It's, it's perversion. Our culture is becoming more perverted. We've become more uh, receptive to sinful things. And I think we're changing, but it really gets down to the heart. What's going on in your heart? Um, and, and that's why I think Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah made it clear, Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? Um, man, he nailed that one. Our hearts are where the sin is. And that's why we need to have a heart transplant a heart change when we become Christian. Uh, warnings throughout the Bible on this one. First Corinthians six eighteen. Flee fornication. Uh, that's porneia, the word fornication, where we get our word pornography, uh, sexual immorality, anything that's sexual outside of mar marriage is fornication. So flee that. Run from every sin that a man doeth is without the body but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about, the sin in your heart that's going on there. So fornication, sexual immorality, is something that needs to be dealt with and dealt with drastically. How drastic should we deal with it? Well, let's read on. Verse 29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and that thy whole body should be cast into hell than, than to have your whole you know, body cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Do you get a sense that you're supposed to deal with stuff pretty harshly? Um, does anybody remember the episode of Little House of the Prairie where Carolyn Ingalls was reading these verses See, I, I grew up watching two programs, Gilligan's Island, which was living on the edge in my family. It's like Ginger and all that. I was like, ooh, my mom's like turning off the TV when Ginger would come on and stuff. Um, probably should have. But, but Gilligan's Island and then His Little House on the Prairie, those were the two shows that were permitted in my house growing up. Uh, but I remember, remember when Carol Ingalls, I think she got a nick on her leg that got infected or something. And, and Charles was gone, the kids were gone and she was home alone. And as she got a fever, she started getting delirious. And then she got out her Bible and she's sharpening this big knife. And she reads, and if your right hand offend thee, cut it off. 
How many of you guys remember that episode of Lost? See, <laughs> like half of you guys, they're all older people here. You young people don't know what you're missing. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I remember thinking, what in the world? Well, that's a classic example of somebody, she was feverish, so we'll give Carolyn a break. Um, but that's a classic way of misinterpreting what Jesus is actually saying. Is he literally saying, cut your hand off, poke your eye out? He's not literally saying that. He's trying to set a precedent of how important it is that you deal drastically with your sinful heart. Deal drastically with your sinful intentions. Um, the idea is, you know, uh, for some of you, maybe it is a thing you need to be more drastic. If your iPhone offends you, cut it off. What do you mean? Time to get one of the ladybug cell phones. The old people one, you know, with the big numbers? Doesn't, doesn't surf the net, doesn't go on uh, Tinder or uh, one of those other ones, uh, you know, Snapchat or any of that, TikTok, none of that. Just your little ladybug phone. Maybe some of you need to hack off your iPhone. Uh, for some of you, it might mean doing something drastic. Maybe, you know, getting covenant eyes, uh, you know, internet software that sort of monitors what you're looking at on, online and, and having a, 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 you know, a person. We've gone over this with Ironworks, talking about the struggle with pornography. We've talked to the men about, you know, uh, covenant eyes and, and accountability. It's, it's important. Oh, Brett, that's the covenant eyes app. I find it to be a little sluggish uh, when you're working with it. Cut it off. Uh, if, so what your, your things don't work exactly perfectly? Uh, it's better to, to uh, you know, cut off your access to pornography or junk than to burn an L. That's what Jesus is basically saying here. So sin is serious. Um, and so is taking out your eye or your, cutting off your hand. Not literally, but seriously, uh, we need to be accountable and make sure that we're not making provision for the lust of the flesh. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. But again, this is all raising the stakes so high. Um, you know, it, it's kind of amazing. Uh, by the way, you know, an example of that in the Old Testament, I think, is the perfect example is you can jot it down as 1 Samuel chapter 15. Remember the story where God tells Saul to kill all the Amalekites in battle because the Amalekites were a horrible, wretched, sinful, pagan people, sacrificing children, doing all kinds of horrible, evil things. So God says, that whole nation of Amalekites, are they're going down, you gotta wipe them all out. Well, Saul goes into battle and God gives Saul a huge, amazing victory. And then when he gets home, he's marching home and he's got all these sheep, which he's not supposed to keep. Remember, they're supposed to kill everything of the Amalekites, sheep, animals, everything. But he comes with a bunch of sheep and, and he's got this guy naked in chains, dragged behind. And Samuel comes up, uh, Saul, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Oh, the sheep, <laughs> they're for sacrifice. Yeah, that's the ticket, for sacrifice to the Lord. We're gonna use those sheep for sacrifice. And who's this dude? Oh, that guy, he, he's Agag. Well, he's the king of the Amalekites. We kept him alive, because that's tradition. You know, you, you march the, the king down the street after you've conquered him. Uh, of course, that's what we do, right? And do you remember what happened? It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, Samuel then asked one of the soldiers, said, could you please blow me your sword? And I'm like, Shh. okay, here you go, Samuel. And the old prophet walks up to the king, King Agag, and starts chopping him into pieces. There's a Bible story for you. Read that for your children at nighttime. Uh, you're like, that's a horrible story. Yeah, that's another Bible example of what you're supposed to do with sin. See, Saul was supposed to wipe out the sinful Amalekites because they were like a disease and they had plagued that whole region with horrible things. But he kept the, some of the Amalekites alive. And, and you know what's interesting about that story? Does anybody recall who was it that took part in killing Saul at the very end? It's 2 Samuel 1, verses eight and nine. As Saul lay injured on battlefield, it says this guy, he answered me and said, Saul said, who art thou? And he, he answered, I answered him and said, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, stand I pray thee upon me and slay me for the anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. Saul lay injured, trying to commit suicide, but failed. And it seems like the story goes where it was ultimately an Amalekite that kills Saul. Um, you know, when you let sin linger and you don't deal with it decisively or harshly, you get nailed. It comes back to get you. You always get nailed by sin. Numbers 32, 23 says it this way. But if you will not do so. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Not the Lord will find you out. He knew you did it long before you did it. But it's your sin that will catch up to you. 
And this is what Jesus is basically saying, man, if, if you're sinning with lust of the flesh, man, you gotta hack that off. Be deal drastically, heavily with it. That's, that's what the Bible says. So there you have it. We, we, um, we've got a lot to go here. I know we've only covered a few verses tonight, but it is the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't wanna rush through any of this, especially this next section. So we'll save that um, verses 31 and onward for next week. Let's pray together. Lord, how thankful we are, just the reminder, these reminders of really how far we are from righteousness. But at the same time, how close we are <clears throat> because <clears throat> you are the solution to this big problem of our sin. Um, I love that you um, tell us in your word that you are our Passover, even as, as uh, Paul said, Christ is our Passover, Lord. The, the sin that leads to death, Lord, we're the, we're the ones that should have died, but, but because of the blood of Jesus, we have the, the, the death that passes over us. And the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, a lot of good things to remember, a lot of important things about righteousness and holiness, but at the same time, Lord, just the impossibility. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you make the impossible possible through your grace, that we can be saved by grace through faith, not of our good works, lest any man should boast. I pray, Lord, that, that because we're saved by your grace, that we wouldn't use that as an occasion to continue on in sin, but Lord, to, to really do like the, the beatitude of blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. I pray that that would become practical for us, Lord, that we would be a church that wouldn't be so easily caving in to the pressures of the world. Lord, that we wouldn't do the sinful things and make excuses for ourselves. But I pray we'd learn to agree with our adversaries quickly and, and to remember um, to be forgiving, even as you've been forgiving toward us. So Lord, I pray that as we study this, Lord, that you just convict our hearts of sin, um, but also remind us, Lord, of your mercy and your goodness. We thank you for that, Lord. And we just continue to read this, Lord, with anticipation as we learn more from your word in Jesus' name, amen.